Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in beautiful Cape Town, South Africa, Kobus Van Staden. Kobus, how are you today? Very well, thanks to you. Excellent. Well, we also are joined on the line from our, the third kind of wheel of our of our of our machine going forward, and this is、uh, Anne Sherman from Washington, who's also the the voice behind our Facebook page. Anne, how are you today? Great, thanks. Excellent. Well, we've got three topics that we're going to address today, and one we're going to talk about right off the bat: this really brewing war of words coming out of the Pretoria in South Africa. Uh, against the West as a whole,、uh, both from the head of the ANC as well as from Tabo Mbeki himself,、uh, we also are going to then move on to a really interesting BBC report,、uh, Africans Eye Chinese Enterprises, that really highlighted a lot of the subtleties in the complexity of the trade relationship, particularly as it relates to textiles. Once again, we will then refer to some of the responses in the South African textile industry. So it's a little bit heavy on a South African show, and then we're going to end on a report out of、um, that、uh, was published by Russia Today:、uh, a peacekeeper menace Pentagon sees Chinese UN missions as a threat. And so, just as the U.S. is ramping up Africom and putting more investments on the continent, the Chinese are also stepping up their investments in UN peacekeeping. Might this be one of the first places where we see the U.S. and China? Chinese militaries、uh, bump into each other, not necessarily in a hostile way, but there is some overlapping interest in Africa. So, let's get started right away off the bat with uh, uh, the, this growing tension that we're seeing out of、uh, out of South Africa, and and I'm really curious to get Kobus's insight on this as to what the politics are behind it. Let me just kind of set the story up、uh, before. So last week. The ANC Secretary General and go ahead, Kobus. You know, help me with the names here.、Uh, Gwede Montashe.、Uh, uh, Gwede Montashe. Okay, wasn't too far off.、Uh, told Reuters that the continent's largest economies were shunning quote, and this is the quote, sulking Western investors and adopting a quote again, look east policy. So South Africa, for a long time in the past, I'd say six to eight months now, has been really looking、uh, to the east. But Kobus, once again, this might be a question of. You know, they may be talking about China. They may be saying they're looking east, but just as we saw in that huge FDI report came in, that came out a few weeks ago,、uh, China is still a relatively small investor in South Africa compared to the European powers. So now,、uh, Tabo Mbeki, former president,、uh, he's saying the West is undermining Africa to thwart Chinese influence.、Uh, so, what is behind this harsh rhetoric coming out of Pretoria in South Africa? You know,、um, it's it's one of those. It's a little bit like criminology, criminology, kind of in South Africa. You know, kind of where you you're trying to read the tea leaves of what's going on in the party. You know, kind of due to a whole bunch of of kind of disparate comments. It seems to me that.、Um, There, there, there might be, you know, what what happens frequently with the ANC is that、um, is that there's a kind of a double messaging, you know, kind of then、um, they when speaking to the outside world, they're actually speaking to the to the interior of the country,、um, and it might be a shoring up of leftist credentials with with、uh, the union part, union side of the ANC、um, tripartite alliance, because the unions are very very strong and, and powerful part of the of the ANC alliance.、Um, You know, kind of. So that I think that might be one side of it. You know, kind of.、Um, every now and then, they they feel the need to kind of put Europe in its place a little bit. You know,、um, yeah. You know, kind of. That, that that's as far as I can as I can see.、Um, so from your however, best reading, it, we... it comes at a weird. 
so from your, from yeah, your yeah. best, sorry to interrupt you. So from your from your best reading, we might want to approach this from under from a domestic political point of view. That the ultimate targets of these comments uh, may not be Brussels or Beijing or Washington, for that matter. But these politicians are really kind of stirring the pot for domestic reasons. I think so. I think so. You know, kind of, there, there's a lot of resentment against against ANC politicians in South Africa as being, you know, because they, some of them are seen as being um, too close to business or being kind of uh, enriching themselves. That's a kind of a general, generalized kind of uh, stereotype of them. Um, you know, so so every now and then they need to kind of show their revolutionary credentials a bit. So that might be one one side of this. Yeah. And one of the comments that also came out of uh, Tabo and Becky this week is that the West has a fear of China and it explains why it continues to undermine Africa's independence. Um, the other you know, example that Mbeki kind of raised in, in this article, um, by the way, this article was coming out of Business Day, uh, the South African publication, uh, and they used the example of the Libya war and how the Arab League was consulted, but not the African Union. So from your point of view in Washington, is fear the, the kind of overriding theme of in terms of or the perception that a lot of Western countries, or particularly the United States, have in in, in relation to Tabo, in, in relation to the Chinese in Africa. So, does Tabo and Becky have it right, or is he is he misunderstood himself? I think that it's not necessarily fear. I think that um, the U.S. is smart to pay attention and you know not to uh, dismiss China's increased role in Africa. And I think that um, this rhetoric from South Africa is. I mean, I found it absurd. I mean, South Africa can't possibly, you know, dismiss the EU. And we see signs recently that, you know, China is slowing down and that China's growth is really dependent on the government's investment in construction. And so I think that, um, like Copes is saying, this must be related to domestic politics. I don't think that, um, you know, this is really what the South African government Intense. Yeah, I mean, I've tweeted a lot this week on the, the increasingly tight link between African economies, but South Africa in particular, to China. And now that China's slowing down, uh, you know, the RAND is tied to it. So many sectors in the South African economy are tied to it. So looking east may not be everything that the, the ANC wants it to be. I mean, they may want some distance from the west. But let me give you the response that came from uh, Roland Vandegeer, who's the head of the European Union delegation in South Africa. And he told Reuters, he said, quote, attack us. That's fine. It doesn't matter. But don't say that in this economic period, we don't need each other because that undermines the relationship. You know, Cobus. Oh, go ahead, Anne. I was going to say I thought his last line was the best line. It's, he's basically saying that in this economy, don't give up your investors. You need to diversify, you know, to start attacking one person or singling out or, you know, um, saying you're only going to look to China is not smart, I don't think. Well, you know, in Cobus, I think... Exactly. And I think, I think also what, you know, kind of what you see is, is, is that um, one, of the, one of the problems that, that plague the ANC, that has been plaguing the ANC for years, is a love of sweeping rhetoric, you know, over a kind of a hard-nosed economic realism. You know, kind of so having the moment to say something kind of um, cutting to Europe, that counts for so much. You know, kind of while, while kind of, um, you know, kind of a, a rationalist kind of uh, hard-nosed realism Realism frequently doesn't count for as much kind of rhetorically in South Africa. Well, this is going to take us into our into our next story. But, 
you know, how much is South Africa playing with fire here with this kind of rhetoric? We've talked a lot about how the Chinese have a lot of choice to select their investment destinations. They can go to any number of countries where there may be looser economic or labor or environmental or any type of advantage that plays to their investment strategy. It could be also be said, said the same of the Europeans, that they're not bound to South Africa any more than any other country is. And if the investment climate uh, becomes either uncomfortable and now we've talked and we're going to get into in our next story about, you know, the rising cost of labor, the rising pressure coming from unions. Um, and so, you know, how much, Cobus, do you think that there's a risk for South Africa to alienate its large Western investors to the point where it could backfire on them with this kind of rhetoric? I think there's a massive risk of that, you know, kind of because um, as South Africa kind of tends to expend energy on these kind of moments, um, countries like Kenya are busy, you know, kind of positioning themselves as being the kind of African hub, you know, kind of so um, after a while, it would make more sense to invest in Nairobi than it would in Johannesburg. Um, and, you know, kind of, you know, the ANC is kind of focusing on messaging and rhetoric and, you know, I mean, Gwedi Mantashe, both Gwedi Mantashe and Tabombeki have long histories of just of saying all kinds of crazy things and then being kind of reined in, you know, kind of by the press. Um, and, you know, it's just, you know, within the country, you know that that's how the, how the process works. They say crazy things and then there's a controversy and then they kind of like, they capitulate quietly a little bit later. But from the outside, no one knows how that works. You know, no one cares. So I, I don't know. I, th I think it's a dangerous policy. It, it, look, it makes South Africa look childish. And, that, you know, that's something that, that I kind of worry about. Okay. Well, let's move on to our second topic now. This was an excellent report put out by Egan Kosu, who's the Africa... Uh, editor, the Biz Africa Business Report editor for BBC World, and he did a TV package and also a website, a web page, uh, web article that we will post up on our Facebook page. And just uh, for reminders, our Facebook page is at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, three words all together. Um, at the and we will go ahead and post this report up because it's definitely worth seeing. What I liked about this report is that he actually reported from China. And you don't see very many African journalists going to China. And then he came back to Africa. And he came back to South Africa in particular, talking about the textile industry. We've seen a number of different reports that came out this past week, actually, on the growing threat and really where the, the heart of a potential trade not war is probably not the right word, but really the, the tensions in the trading relationship are going to come in textiles, that Chinese textiles, very, very low-cost Chinese textiles, when they flood African markets, have a disproportionate impact given how much of the economy depends on this low-skilled labor. So, Cobus, um, actually, let's start with Anne. And what was your impression? And I've already set it up saying I thought it was an excellent report, but what, what kind of stood out for you in this report? I mean, I think it's just interesting to see that, you know, that he has another side of the story that um, it's not all about Chinese goods flooding into Africa, but, you know, Africans going to China and seeking out, um, you know, seeking out business opportunities. And he also spoke about, you know, what can we, what can we find that we have that we can provide to China and what does China need? And, you know, eventually, um, you know, he really emphasized the reason why it was easier for him to do business there was because of the great infrastructure. Um, and, you know, once Africa can kind of get this infrastructure, how can they, 
you know, transfer the things that he's learning in China and that he's able to do there to Africa. So what he so. did is he profiled a gentleman by the name of Enoch uh, Mundia, who's from Zambia, who's the co-owner of the Shanghai Liberty Apparel Company. And, and you know, you don't see that many Africans in Shanghai. There are quite a few in Guangzhou, but, you know, it must have been rather surprising uh, for a lot of people to see an African trader being rather successful because you just don't see that many there. So, But it does show, as, as you put rightly put, Anne, another side of the trading relationship and the complexities in the relationship. Kobus, uh, what stood out for you in this? What stood out for me, you know, kind of just to drag it back again and kicking the scream into South Africa, is obviously he contrasted the Zambian uh, manufacturer who is manufacturing in China and then acts as a kind of a conduit to, to move Chinese goods to Zambia to the unions in South Africa um, that are protesting against the importation of, of cheap textiles from China. And um, just, just to put it in the context of the previous story, these unions that, that we've been mentioning, these unions are in um, alliance with, with the ANC government in South Africa, which means that as these unions are complaining, um, you know, kind of about Chinese imports, the very same, they, their tripartite alliance members, the ANC, are busy kind of trumpeting a look east by you know, kind of. So I think, I think, you know, an excellent point. you see a kind of muddlement and mixing up of 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 kind of of, of positions within the ANC, within the, the, the kind of ruling party in South Africa, and I think the Zambians seem to be much more clear-headed about their relationship with China and what they can get out of it than South Africans. But this has always been a point that I've been raising for a number of years: is that the the real ultimate victims of China's you know artificially low currency. Now, their currency has appreciated considerably over the past, you know, five or six years. So the argument doesn't stand quite as strong. But really, you know, was the ability to export so cheaply. Uh, we're developing countries, particularly in Africa. Now, it, it's a mixed blessing for a lot of people in Africa because they get products cheaper than would be made locally. Uh, but at the same time, when you make it so cheap, there's no vent there's no vested interest in anybody hiring anybody because you can get it from China. I mean, these were the... Uh, you know, in, in Cairo, you see all over the place the, the little alarms to, uh, for, to, for, for Muslims to, to pray five times a day. Uh, all of that's made in China, and that used to be something made by Egyptians. Uh, you know, textiles in Africa used to be an indigenous industry, and now it's made by, um, you know, it's, 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 it's made by China. And do you see in these arguments, and what Kobus just kind of pointed out, uh, similarities to what you hear in the United States about this protectionism, uh, particularly coming from unions, and this idea that, you know, if you put up barriers high enough and expensive enough, it can somehow turn back time. Well, I mean, of course, I think these are issues that affect every country around the world. And, um, you know, obviously the U.S. has um, serious qualms with China's currency. And, um, you know, I think obviously you're right, there is progress. I also think that um, sort of the time is running out for China to be this um, land of, you know, unlimited, extremely cheap labor. I think that wages are going to have to increase and, you know, China is becoming richer. And I think that hopefully eventually some of these jobs will end up moving to Africa. And I think that it's, I mean, it's unrealistic to think that China's, impact on Africa is completely good. I think that, you know, you need to see this as a relationship, 
you know, how can we make it advantageous on both sides? So. But, you, you know, we talk about that, and you, and you do raise a good point. We talk about the fact that Cobus, we mentioned, I think, about four or five weeks ago on the show, how Hua Jin, uh, you know, made a $2 billion investment in the Ethiopian shoe industry. This would have been an investment 10 years ago that we never could envision China offshoring shoe manufacturing. Um, but as Anne rightly pointed out, you know, labor costs are rising. The cost of business in China is rising. Africa seems to be a beneficiary of it. But you look at Ethiopia and you look at South Africa, and they're two radically different approaches in terms of how to attract uh, Chinese investment. Yeah, I think so. You're not going to... Um it's also, um, you know, in South Africa, particularly the case, the, case, the issue of the unions again come up. You know, kind of South Africa has very aggressive unions, and um, you know, so the, there's lots of uh, there's quite a lot of strikes and quite a lot of ac- union activism. I think for for better and for worse. You know, kind of South Africa has a as a, a, a strong union infrastructure. Um, you know, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, to which extent that helps South African workers and to which extent it actually keeps investment out, particularly Chinese investment out, because I don't think the Chinese are so used to that kind of activism. No, and certainly not. But, and, and it may not be uniform either, because one of the other trends that seems to be holding on in South Africa, particularly in the eastern, in eastern portions of South Africa, in the auto manufacturing zone, uh, Chinese auto manufacturers seem to be attracted to to South Africa, whereas maybe textiles and other uh, areas uh, may run into some problems. But we really, really recommend this BBC report. Once again, we'll put it up on the Facebook page. Uh, really kind of highlighted the texture and the nuance that you don't usually see in most reporting about China and Africa. And it was, of course, one of our complaints about the BBC uh, Africa debate show was it lacked a little bit of this nuance, but it definitely came up in uh, in this sh- in this uh, particular report. So let's move on to our third and final topic today. Um, this is a story out of RT. I usually don't go to Russia today um, for for a source because I do feel like they do come with a very strong point of view. However, they did, um, and it's particularly an anti-American point of view. Not that I have any problem with that per se, but um, <laughs> but it is you know you you do have a, it's like Al Jazeera you you know what you're getting an Al Jazeera Arabic yes. you know you know what you're getting yes. when you go there. Um, so peacekeeper mm. menace, Pentagon sees Chinese U.S. missions as a threat. So a couple little key factoids here before I throw it over to you guys. Um, I did not realize that uh, in the report it says with 2,000 troops currently deployed worldwide in 10 different United Nations missions, the PRC provides more peacekeeping manpower than any other permanent member of the Security Council. So that's, of course, um, you know, permanent member, which is France, Russia, China, uh, the, the UK and the US. So uh, but that's interesting. I guess the United States really insists on leadership of missions, but rather than and doesn't actually want to put boots on the ground for UN missions because they're not very politically popular. Uh, however, uh, also in the context of, of, of Africa, and this again has been my big point, I'd love to hear what Anne thinks on this. You know, for the Americans, Africa is a security uh, partnership. Uh, again, I've mentioned 25% of USAID uh, support is in military form, uh, uh, either direct or indirect. Uh, AFRICOM is is growing in presence, not only in its bases, but also the role in various embassies. Uh, you're seeing drone bases now in Ethiopia, which are launching attacks into Yemen, as well as in places like Somalia. 
Uh, Djibouti is still an American military base. So, you know, the, the United States doesn't look at the world the same way the Chinese do in terms of markets and investment and trade, uh, much more into military terms. Um, so it's not surprising that as the peacekeeping and the military presence of the Chinese ramps up, you're going to bump into, you know, the big dog in the neighborhood. And when you read this article, did you feel that RT was being fair? Did you think that this is something, is a legitimate argument for the Americans to be sensitive about the Chinese deploying military assets into Africa? And what do you think the reaction in Washington would be? I mean, I think, I think there's two issues. I think one is that America, you know, Africa is a security, uh, security partnership for America. And, you know, I think that the U.S. view is much more universal and, um, you know, as a great power, we have burdens to ensure that there is international security, and I think that um, China is not quite as focused on that yet. Um, and I think that we, the U.S., in terms of China's peacekeeping role and military role in Africa, is more concerned about uh, the consumers of China's, you know, military. So, um, who are they selling arms to, or um, you know, who are they helping prop up? I think that as China continues to expand and do business in more places in Africa, it's going to feel the burdens of, you know, becoming a greater power and it's going to have to take a more, um, I guess, it's going to have to start worrying more about international security and who it's supporting and it's going to have to kind of back away from this non-interference policy. So. You know, but what I find interesting is, you know, the, the U.S. seems to want it both ways. On the one hand, they say we're, we're exhausted of being the world's policemen. We're exhausted, which I, I don't believe they are, but they, you know, the U.S. pursues its interests just like every other country does, but it doesn't perform or behave in an altruistic manner. Um, so on the one hand, they're saying, you know, China needs to step up and help share the, you know, become a global leader. Hillary Clinton was just in Beijing a couple weeks ago saying this very thing, that the Chinese need to play a greater role in international affairs. And the United States doesn't want to carry the, the defense burden for much longer. There's not a lot of domestic support in the U.S. for this. And yet when you start to see the Chinese stepping into this role, then you hear this kind of like, oh, wait, hold on. You know, the second thing is that when you compare Chinese weapon sales, even in Africa, places like Zimbabwe, um, and you compare it to American weapon sales uh, worldwide, you know, China is a tiny, small percentage. Um, so it just seems there's a little bit of, you know, wanting it both ways from the point of view of the Americans. Um, I actually wanted to ask you, both you guys, um, just in terms of the of the weapons sales issue, um, Defense Web recently, um, you know, kind of mentioned that uh, Chinese-Pakistan um, collaboration is... is um, planning to say to sell fighter jets to a bunch of African countries, um, including the DRC, including Nigeria, and then also Sudan. Um, and Jane's Defense Weekly also was talking about how Sudan is modernizing its air force with help from Russia, China, and Pakistan. Um, do you foresee that kind of, kind of muddying the relationship between China and the U.S. in the future? You know, Kobus, I actually got to ask that question to uh, James Fallows this week. And he just wrote a book about China's aerospace industry and how he thinks it's going to be the next big boom in China and the next big industry. And he, he told me that he thinks that that's not something that the U.S. should worry about at all. He says that Chinese, um, 
Chinese aerospace and military are so far behind uh, the Western capabilities and Western technology, and he doesn't think that that will be a huge, um, a, a huge emphasis on China's military capabilities in the next five or ten years. James Fallows, of course, is an editor at The Atlantic and a longtime correspondent, former correspondent in Beijing, who writes uh, really compelling content uh, and articles on, on China, but is probably not going to shift the balance of power or pose a threat to, say, American drones or American military assets in, in Africa. However, uh, you know, that type of, of aircraft, you know, the, the Sudanese have been banned from buying those types of uh, materials uh, for a, quite a long time. And so the deployment of aircraft, you know, into southern, in, you know, against South Sudan would probably be controversial and politically unpopular, if not militarily significant. So, uh, but it, it does, you know... I, I, I have this point of view that you know if that if you if you think of, of yourself as a hammer, then everything else is a nail, you know, and it's that. And I, I, you know, the Americans are so obsessed with you know security and militarization of uh, and terrorism and whatnot that you know, and to me, this is the advantage for the Chinese is to take advantage of the fact that the Americans don't pay attention to a broad agenda, but really focus so intently on security, both in South Asia as well as in Africa, that they. Um, that that the sensitivity to the Chinese stepping up into peacekeeping missions is kind of ridiculous when you look at the scale of the PLA compared to the American military. I mean, the the, the Chinese defense budget, even though it's growing, is infinitesimally small compared to the American defense budget. So I'm not sure where the threat or the insecurity is coming from. But maybe, Anne, in Washington, there's just threats. There's a perception of threats from all sides. I mean, I think that the U.S., I mean... I don't think it's ridiculous that the U.S. is concerned about security around the world and that that's its, um, you know, that maybe it comes off as that's its primary... To the exclusion of, other, of everything else. That's, that's where I think it's ridiculous. My, of course, to be concerned about security is important, but when you focus on little else in many parts of the world, that's where I, I come down, I criticize the, uh, the U.S. policy. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, we talk about... You know, China, everyone has the right to have, you know, their own strategic interests. Um, you know, China tries to say its interests are only businesslike and it's self-interested. And the U.S. has every right to be concerned with democracy and good governance around the world, um, how, however big or small. And I think that, um, you know, I don't think that we necessarily fear China's peacekeeping role in Africa, but I think that... Um, sometimes we don't really know the true intentions or we don't think we understand the true intentions of China in Africa and Sudan and all these places and what role they plan to play. Um, and so I think that's why there needs to be more, you know, cooperation, China and the U.S. in Sudan or in these kind of places so that um, it's more of a both, both countries working together as peacekeepers rather than one versus the other. Okay. Kobus, final words are going to go to you today. Um, actually, I want to actually throw a very a super basic question to you guys. Like, do you for, do you foresee that the, is the U.S. at some stage in order to kind of boost the their trade? You know, at the moment the U.S. has, has, a, has a big trade imbalance with with Africa, and they tend to import a lot from Africa, but they don't export a lot to Africa. Um, and the you know the Chinese have a much more balanced kind of trade balance with with Africa. Do you foresee that the U.S. is um, at some stage going to move into a similar kind of? Uh, 
you know, um, ex, you know, kind of like, for example, oil for infrastructure kind of deal structure um, that the Chinese are doing in Africa. Um, are they going to be following the Chinese no. into this kind of paradigm? Or no, not? not at all, in part because you don't have the unity between the state-owned enterprises. We don't have state-owned enterprises the same way the Chinese do. And you can't mm -hmm. compel General Electric to produce yeah. a piece of infrastructure at below cost oftentimes or at... Um, you know, a substandard and these quality issues oftentimes are driven by the deals, not necessarily by the incapability of a Chinese co contractor to produce a good quality road. So I think those conditions are not ripe and not set up for an American uh, type scenario. You also have the uh, the very, you know, some of the transparency issues that Anne talked about um, is a very relevant issue. You know, the fact is that these negotiations with the Chinese are done, you know, in a rather opaque way. The relationship between the state, the SOE, and the African government is not entirely clear. Um, what is aid, what is infrastructure, and what is just a deal is is also not clear. And I think American law, particularly the, the anti-corruption measures of American law, would have a big, big problem with that. You know, the Americans don't look at Africa as a market because, in part, we don't produce the kinds of goods that uh, really have a, a wide appeal there. You know, the cost structure for a lot of American goods is simply too high. And uh, these markets are emerging markets, and the Americans have kind of let, um, you know, South Korea, let other men, uh, Brazil, let the BRICS really handle emerging markets, whereas the U.S. is really going after much more aggressively, uh, you know, developed markets for the most part. And what's your thoughts? I have to agree with you. I don't think this is on America's horizon because I don't think they have the same advantages there as the Chinese do, um, just like you said. And I think that, you know, it's not really somewhere that right now Americans are willing to go or you know or they see as um, profitable so um, you know I think the Chinese have a lot of advantages in terms of experience and um, manpower and you know OECD um, I don't think that this is really that the US will follow China in yeah. the same way. it's not in the in the political economic or diplomatic culture of the United States to to behave like that so it'd be you know, it, 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 yeah, it's hard to imagine that, that they would go that way. That's not to say that U.S. foreign policy doesn't often represent corporate interests. Uh, so you might see some synergies in terms of interests, but you won't necessarily see the cohesion of agendas the way that you see with the SOEs and, and Chinese foreign policy in that sense. So, so that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. As always, you can find us on Facebook. Um, we're trying to kind of spark some conversation on Facebook. So if you have some thoughts and some comments on the show, on some of the posts, if there's a topic that you're interested in that we'd like, do you like us to do some research for or just want to bring to our attention, we're always eager to engage and to have conversations with folks. So particularly if you are uh, either from China or from Africa to get your perspectives out, we would love to hear from you. Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, Kobus, if people want to find you on Twitter, where is the best place for them to go? I am at Stadnesk, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. -E. And Anne, where can they find you on Twitter? I'm at A-N-N-E-S-H-E-R-0-7. And, oh, say that one more time. I cut you off there. Oh, it's okay. Anne Sure 7 Anne Sure 7 uh, All three of us, you can find me at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. All three of us are regularly tweeting on China and Africa, so it's a great way to stay on top of the issue without having to do too much extra research. 
And of course, you can always find us on iTunes. And one of the things we're asking everybody to do, you know, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything we say, we would love to hear from you on iTunes and to rate it because that allows us to move higher in the Apple food chain so that we can get some visibility and get the show out to an even wider audience. So uh, next week, we'll be back with another edition of the of the podcast. We've got a great guest schedule talking about uh, Sino-African educational exchanges. So hopefully, Stephen Haggard will be able to join us for next week. Uh, until then, we'll talk to you on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. <laughs>